Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, we're taking a look at the ancient war between our genes and the pathogens that infect us, looking back thousands of years to the Black Death and before, all the way through to our very latest foe. Before we start, yes, one more quick plug for my new book, Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution and the Science of Life, exploring what we've learned so far about where cancer comes from, where it's going and how we might finally beat it. It's coming out in the UK on the 6th of August and in the US on the 29th of September and it's available now to pre-order from rebelcellbook.com. And if you're able to, please do pre-order it, as it all helps to send the book up the charts in its first week and will make my mum and dad ever so proud of me. Thank you very much. I know I promised that this would be a coronavirus-free podcast, but we're now at the end of July 2020 and it's not going away anytime soon. One of the most curious things about COVID-19, the disease caused by the novel SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus that's causing so much trouble, is the wide variation in how it affects different people, from being a very serious or even fatal illness, through a range of strange symptoms like skin rashes or diarrhoea, as well as the classic cough, fever and loss of smell that vary in their severity. And some lucky folk who seem to catch the virus but have no symptoms at all. So, do these differences lie in our genes? Or are there other factors at play? One way of finding out how much of the variation in any trait in a population is in the genes, something more scientifically known as heritability, is to look at nature's own genetic experiment – twins. And how better to do that than with the Twins UK cohort, a massive ongoing study of more than 14,000 identical and non-identical twins set up more than 25 years ago by Professor Tim Spector at King's College London. By comparing identical twins who share all their genes with non-identical twins who are as related as regular siblings, Tim and his team are able to start teasing out the effects of genetics from the environment. For example, if identical twins tend to be more close in height than non-identical twins, then that tells you there's likely to be a genetic component. And you can do all sorts of clever statistics to figure out how much is likely to be in those genes somewhere. So when the COVID-19 pandemic started, Tim and his team wanted to find a way of quickly reaching out to the twins in their study to find out how coronavirus was affecting them and see whether there was any genetic component to the variation in responses to the disease. To do this, he brought in the health technology company Zoe, who quickly built a simple app enabling the twins to log their health and any new symptoms on a daily basis. And then, he thought... Why stop there? The COVID symptom study app was rolled out to the public and there are now more than 4 million people in the UK, US and Sweden using the app to log their health. Since then, the data from the app has revealed a wealth of knowledge about COVID-19 and by way of full disclosure, me and the team at First Create the Media have been working with Zoe to help with their science communications, which explains why I've been very, very tired lately. But to go back to the app's original purpose, what does the data reveal about the variability of COVID symptoms between people and how much might be in our genes? 
To find out, I spoke with consultant geriatrician Dr Claire Steves, one of the similarly very, very tired researchers at King's College London, who's been working round the clock to analyse all the data coming out of the app. So, first question, is there a difference between identical and non-identical twins in how likely they are to have the same symptoms of COVID-19? We have seen that identical twins are more similar in the symptoms that they've had than non-identical twins. And that hints at a genetic component to how we experience the disease. Now, from what I understand about COVID, there's a whole range of symptoms from that classic, you know, cough and fever, losing your sense of smell, all the way through to sort of gastric symptoms and some very strange things. Does the the amount to which that seems to be in your genes, is that the same for all the symptoms? Well, all of the symptoms we found to have some heritability, but there were some that really were key and I think are really interesting. And one in particular that was the most heritable was what we call delirium. And actually within the app, what we asked was whether or not someone had experienced confusion, disorientation or drowsiness. And this is because delirium, which is an acute confusional state that can come with any acute illness, it's not driven by underlying neurological problems usually, it's usually in a response to a very strong stressor, that that symptom was really highly heritable and that's one of the first times that that's been identified. It's quite difficult to study delirium because it's such a transient phenomenon. But that's really interesting because it could be that this virus has what we call a neurotropism, so an ability or an affinity to get into neurological cells, as well as an ability to cause this cytokine storm and very strong sort of fever and systemic reaction, which then can lead to pressure, as it were, on the brain's functioning. And I think that's going to be a very interesting area of research because many doctors are concerned about the potential mental health effects of this virus as well in the short and the long term. With the twin study, you're basically comparing identical twins and non-identical twins and and sort of getting an idea of how much any of the symptoms or effects of the virus is likely to be in the genes compared to not in the genes. But do we know anything about the actual genes? Because obviously the immune system is incredibly complicated and there must be many, many thousands of genes involved in it. Do we know any of the kind of the prime suspects that are involved in the response to coronavirus or the development of COVID-19 as a disease? Well, that's a very good question. And it's a question that we're in a really good place to answer now, having um, sort of gone through the last 20 years of the Human Genome Project, and then very large studies around the world have got genetic information on cohorts of individuals. And there's a big consortium initiative coming together across the world, and specifically across the UK, trying to look at symptoms from coronavirus and testing from coronavirus against genetic architecture. And those studies haven't yet come to fruition. It's really important in genetic studies that they're carefully conducted to make sure that the population, as it were, are balanced and also that you replicate signals across different communities and populations. And so that process is undergoing. And I think, you know, it won't be very long before we have an understanding of what the genes are that are driving this heritability that we see. And of course, there may be a difference in terms of heritability or genes that 
lead to somebody having the infection to the genes that lead to somebody having the infection in a certain way, so with certain symptoms. I think that's going to be key as well, not just to look at the genes which define whether or not you've had exposure, that it's in a sense got into your body, but genes that define how your body then reacts to it, which is all around symptoms. So the way that you've been gathering data from the twins is through the COVID symptom study app, which is also gathering data from the much wider population. And I think it's very interesting, some of the findings that have suggested that certain populations sort of black and ethnic minority populations, different parts of the country, different age groups, different sexes may be at different levels of risk. What's the next stage for really trying to get to grips with all that data? What picture is kind of emerging about coronavirus across the UK and the other countries where the app is working? I think, um, I mean, the main picture that it's emerging is actually that one of the biggest risk factors which is there is actually around age and frailty level so and I think that's something that isn't genetically defined although of course one's aging response you know there are certain characteristics of biological aging which could be related to um, genetics that risk is not really clearly genetic and I think that it's that demographic architecture that is defining the disease as it's presenting most of all and then the secondary thing is of course the effect and you know the really important effect of social distancing and the things that we're all doing to keep each other separate from each other because those affect the environmental transmission of the disease and so I guess that's where the complexity comes again in looking at genetics because in order to do so you really have to keep those things stable so for example when we've been looking at our twins where we've been looking in detail at the twins that are involved in the app and also twins that we're involving in serology studies that we're doing we've made careful pains to make sure that we have adjusted for their environmental distance and in some cases we're just using twins who live within a certain radius of each other because then they will be in a sense experiencing the same environmental context because of course when you look at genetics and heritability you're always balancing that influence in the environment against the influence of genetics and where certain things like for example living in a city in the middle of a pandemic that could be very overwhelming and overwhelm the signal I think that's kind of what we've seen across the demographics of the UK that it's really been in urban centres and I think that's a real lesson that we all know isn't it that really tracking tracing understanding where the virus is is really important for spread. Claire Steves from King's College London. While Claire and her colleagues are looking at how genetics affects our susceptibility to a very modern pandemic, Christiana Scheib, head of the Ancient DNA Research Facility at the University of Tartu in Estonia, is looking at much older plagues, including the granddaddy of them all, the Black Death. Well, I'm very interested in all of the factors that relate to susceptibility to infectious disease. So, for example, we know from looking at modern people that a lot of things affect whether or not you're going to be susceptible. So your age, your diet, maybe your oral microbiome, your immune state, stress, um, whether you've already got some other infection. And what we're trying to do is disentangle these in ancient populations. So we want to say, for example, look at a plague pandemic, let's say the Black Death, and we've got a site in Cambridge, and we want to know, okay, we've got 20 victims in this site, but we've got 40 people who don't seem to be victims of the Black Death, but they're in the same time period. We want to know, well, why did those people die of the Black Death and others didn't? 
And presumably also like, well, what did those other people die of? Exactly. Yeah, we want to be able to diagnose them as well. And there are some things that sort of fall through the cracks when you're doing just normal techniques, so normal metagenomic screening. And so what we're trying to do is layer multiple techniques so that we can get as much information out as possible and come to some sort of diagnosis for those seemingly healthy dead people. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they're dead, so they're not not that healthy. Yeah, but... Some people don't die of disease. I mean, plenty of people die from trauma, which you can sometimes see on the skeletons very easily. You can see somebody's had a knife wound to the head that hasn't healed, or they've been crushed by some sort of horse cart or something like that. Or, you know, people do also just get old and die. So, and it's not necessarily from an infection. So those are the things that, you know, you're not going to be able to tell from finding a bacterial agent in their blood. So tell me a bit about the project and the people that you're studying. So I'm working on a project called the After the Plague Project, which is maybe a bit of a misnomer because we are looking both before, during, and after the plague. But the point of it is to understand the medieval health in Cambridge. And to do that, what we're doing is taking a time transect of skeletons from the Cambridge area. We're keeping it local so that we can sort of avoid the variables that come into play when you look at multiple geographic locations. But we're going from the Neolithic up until post-medieval, early modern people. And we are looking at those skeletons to find traces of how the Black Death affected their health. So tell me a bit more about the, the life and times of your patients. So first we're looking at the Neolithic, which is actually only two samples, which we published recently in um, Annals of Human Biology, but that's a, between 6,000 to 4,000 years before today. And then we have quite a few individuals from the early Roman period. We have early Anglo-Saxons, late Anglo-Saxons, medieval period, and post-medieval early modern. So basically from the year zero and just before up until modern day. And where are these people in Cambridge? Where are you finding them? We wanted to look at urban versus rural. So some of them are from archaeological sites in Cherry Hinton, Duxford, Gamlingay. Um, Lovely. <laughs> yeah, Barrington, Edix Hill. The core medieval population comes from within Cambridge itself. So the St. John's Divinity School site, All Saints by the Castle, uh, St. Bennet Street, the Augustinian Friary and the New Museum site. I think those are the main ones. So you're finding all these people from all these different times in these locations, then how are you looking at them? Well, we have quite a large team from various backgrounds. They are looking at the bones. They're looking at, well, how much usage did the people get out of their bones? They're looking at what did they eat? How did this affect their chemical signature in the bones? People are looking at, you know, lesions from diseases that they may have had. And then, of course, we are looking at the DNA and the proteins that are stuck inside the teeth and the bones um, after they died. So what kind of things can you actually pull out? Because I know that you can look at basic genetics, understand the genome of these people. What can you understand about disease? Well, first of all, you can find an actual infection that the person had. If it's present in the bloodstream in high amounts, once they die, your bones kind of act like a sponge and just absorb whatever's happening. And so we are able to say, in the case of uh, plague, we're able to find plague DNA in the teeth. We're able to find hepatitis B virus in people's teeth. We're able to find leprosy, tuberculosis, uh, any of these bacterial or viral diseases that have affected people for a long time, we are able to find those. And can you tell whether that actually killed someone? How do you understand what was the impact of this infection and was it the thing that actually sent them off? So that's a bit more difficult, but some diseases you can be fairly certain. So plague causes death 
because it's septicemic or it gets into your bloodstream in high amounts. And so if we find it in somebody's tooth, it's very likely that they actually died from that. Now, tuberculosis, for example, you can live with for a long time. And if we find that in your bone, you could have died from being stabbed in the heart, but you also had tuberculosis. So it's not really diagnostic in that way. You mentioned that you're looking at genetics and also proteomics. What do you mean by that? And what can studying proteins tell us that studying DNA can't? So DNA is like a blueprint, but if you want to understand the actual execution of the plan, then you need to look at the proteins. So the DNA tells us just what proteins are being expressed, right? So if we want to understand whether someone was exposed to a disease, then we have to not only find the DNA of the disease in their bloodstream, but it would also be really good to see if they have any immune proteins that match, you know, a a particular disease. Or if we want to know about their diet, sometimes it's easier to find proteins like milk proteins we often find in their teeth, which are easier to find than, say, uh, milk DNA or something like that. And you also mentioned looking at microbes. Obviously, there are microbes that cause disease and are very nasty, but we are full of microbes that are the good bacteria, the microbiome that live in our guts and live in our our mouths and and all over our body. Can you study those and, and find out what that might say about health? Absolutely. So um, before modern dentistry, people didn't brush their teeth as much. And so they have what we would call dental tartar or plaque, or we would call it dental calculus, which is actually the preserved calcified biofilm that builds up on your teeth when you don't brush them. And when we extract DNA and proteins from that, we can actually find all of the species of bacteria and viruses that were in their mouths. And it's layered as well. So it's throughout their lifetime, or at least the lifetime of that calculus building up. And that can tell us a lot about what was going on with their periodontal disease and potentially as well about other states that they would have had. So bringing all this information together about the people, the bones, their proteins, their genetics, all sorts of things, what they ate, where they lived, what picture is starting to emerge of the life and times of the people of Cambridge? Well, not so different from modern day, I'd say. (laughs) Except, you know, today we have... Less Wi-Fi. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I mean, the thing that you learn the most about when you look at the past is that people are just people. People have always been people. And a lot of the fears and hardships that people have faced in the past, we still face today, although things, I'd say, are much, much better now than in the 14th century. The 14th century was a dire place. But, of course, they wouldn't have realized that because they wouldn't know any different. So, I mean, we do find plenty of people living to ripe old ages, lots of little old ladies living in, um, in hospitals and in rural communities. Um, we find lots of, you know, children suffering from diseases, malnutrition, um, which, of course, is less prevalent today. But in general, a lot may be quite different about the past in that there's more diseases that we don't have today. However, you know, genetically, the people in Cambridge are actually very similar probably to the people who live here today, who are locals. And so, you know, as everything changes, a lot also stays the same. So the project's called After the Plague. Tell me a little bit more about the the plague, the Black Death. We have this idea of like, it's this horrific pestilence that swept certainly through Europe. Do any of your findings shed light on these epidemics and what they can tell us about humans and the plague and and the epidemics of the past? Absolutely. I think the one main thing we are learning more and more from ancient DNA, specifically of the plague, is that it's not just the Black Death and it's not just the plague, which we tend to think of as a singular event. We should actually be calling our project after the plagues uh, because actually it's been affecting humans for thousands of years since the Neolithic period. In fact, there's the Neolithic plague, Bronze Age plague, there's the Justinianic plague or the sort of Anglo-Saxon period plague. Then you've got the Black Death, finally, and then more and more. And it comes back into England over and over again recurring for hundreds of years until finally we get antibiotics and we're able to wipe it out. 
thank goodness there is no more plague in the UK, but there is plague in the rest of the world. Is there anything you can take from your findings that might shed more light on the plague that is still around? Yes, our goal is to try to identify regions of the genome that have been selected for by past plague pandemics so that we can understand the evolution of the plague, the co-evolution with the human genome. And this might help us develop uh, new therapies or understand better just why some people are more susceptible to plague than others. Because humans have evolved with our pathogens as, as long as we've been around and as long as pathogens have been around. Exactly, yeah. And we have to understand that deep history in order to predict where we're going in the future and to help us to combat these pathogens in the future because it's not they're not going to go away we haven't been able to eradicate well most of them so we need to have this information to help us in the future christiana scheib from the university of tartu you're listening to genetics unzipped the genetic society podcast Find us online at geneticsunzip.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show? As Christiana mentioned, we humans are locked in an ongoing struggle that's been waged over thousands of years against the pathogens that infect us, of which SARS-CoV-2 and the Black Death are just two in a seemingly endless army. And now that we're able to look at DNA from ancient human remains, researchers like Lucy van Dorp from University College London are able to act as genetic archaeologists, searching for the remnants of past battles within our genomes. So what are our oldest foes on the disease battlefield? Trying to understand how old some of our pathogens are, some of the really common human-associated pathogens today, is quite difficult. It's a question which many geneticists and, and evolutionary biologists have been asking for a long period of time. And what we're finding is that the age of many of our pathogens keeps changing. As we get more data and more evidence, we keep changing our minds. And so currently, I would say one of the pathogens that we think is the oldest that might have plagued us for the longest period of time is uh, plasmodium species. And these are the agents of malaria. I say this because in human genomes today, we see quite a lot of evidence for selection for traits that help reduce your susceptibility to malaria, particularly in African populations. And for these traits to rise to the kind of frequency that we observe, we really think that these pathogens must have been exerting a selective pressure for a long period of time. Other interesting and very old bugs are, for example, a pathogen called Helicobacter pylori, which is found in our stomachs. And this seems to be as old as maybe 100,000 years or so, so really consistent with the origins and the spreads of of Homo sapiens as a species. And then we have other diseases, so uh, plague, tuberculosis, that are all a little bit more recent in time. These are much more consistent with the timings of, say, the Neolithic Revolution. And then some of the very common diseases that we're handling today, so smallpox, influenza, measles, HIV, they're actually all really quite recent. And so there's really no doubt that infectious diseases have had an enormous impact on our human genomes. They're probably the biggest selective force we've experienced and wiped out a huge number of humans through history. But actually knowing what some of these pathogens were through time and how they might have impacted on us is really a very active and ongoing field of research. We don't see as much evidence in the human genome as we might expect for the legacy of these kind of infections we know are very common through time. Given that these pathogens have been around for a very long time, in some cases many, many thousands of years, what kind of influence might they have had on our evolutionary history as a species? My feeling is that 
throughout our history, infectious diseases are probably the biggest selective pressure that we've experienced. They've wiped out huge populations. You only have to look at, for example, the Black Death or even the 1918 influenza pandemic to see that many, many populations have been decimated through time because of infectious diseases. And even today, we're still really struggling with uh, malaria, with tuberculosis and many other infectious diseases, despite the fact that we're now in the antibiotic era and potentially we have some therapies at our disposal and and, uh, more sophisticated healthcare systems. And so it really isn't a long stretch of the imagination to assume that through time diseases have really had an enormous impact. One thing that's very interesting is if we look at human genomes, we find that we don't see very much evidence for selection driven by infectious diseases, certainly not as much as we would expect. And there's a couple of reasons why this might be the case. It could be that, you know, we're being infected by slightly different organisms. We've been evolving, but our pathogens and our bugs have also been evolving in different and mysterious ways to try and evade our immune defences. But also the kind of statistical methods that we use for inferring selection are not well designed for infectious diseases because they infect in very different ways. People present in very different ways. And certainly any disease which affects someone after reproductive age, we likely won't see a a legacy of in their genome. So it's a little bit of a mystery, you know, why we don't see more evidence in the human genome for the impact of disease. But we really do think it's been incredibly important. But here's a curious thing. While some very strongly selected advantageous human traits, like lactase persistence, the ability to drink milk beyond infancy, have left signatures of selection in the human genome. We don't see the same signatures when it comes to genes involved in fighting infection. So it is a bit of a mystery. If we look at lactose persistence, we see it's been under a huge selective pressure and and it's difficult to imagine the multitude of reasons that could be responsible for why drinking milk was just so important to your survival and to your fitness. And arguably the ability to survive a plague pandemic or a similar large-scale infectious disease agent should have exerted just as much of a selective pressure. But we don't see it. And I think it's a real challenge. I'd love to be able to get in a time machine and go back in time and say, you know, what was happening back through time with our interactions with disease? How were we evolving? What were we doing? And one of the nice things about genetics is it gives you an opportunity to start to have a bit of a pseudo time machine because you start to be able to tease apart some of these signals. But actually understanding what has been selected for and what hasn't, particularly in the context of disease, but also in the context of some of these cultural traits like drinking milk, is something that's really incredibly interesting. It's not just human genomes that can be analysed in ancient remains. There's plenty more in there which can shed light on the diseases that killed our ancestors. So DNA is really just a string of letters of A, T, Cs and Gs. And the kind of methods that we use to infer how people have moved and migrated in the past are directly transferable to many other different species. And some of the species that I'm most interested in are common pathogens, in particular tuberculosis and malaria. And it's possible to use exactly the same methods to ask how have our bugs changed and moved and adapted through time in just the same way as we've been thinking about human genomes. And so when you take an ancient sample, for example, sampling the archaeological remains of an individual who died, quite often the amount of DNA that you get back is is very little of the human content and is actually a lot of everything else. And I really mean everything else. There's a real soup of information there. But if you get lucky, you might find that you can sequence the pathogen that may have killed this person at the, at the time of their death. 
And in this way, we can start to ask questions about what diseases have occurred at different time points, and we can extract the genomes of these pathogens and say, how have they evolved? How have they moved through time? And this is something that we care about at very ancient timescales, but also we need to care about quite recently, for example, pre the antibiotic era, to see how our pathogens have been changing in response to us using different treatments. And in terms of historic pathogen genomes, some work that I've been involved in, which I found really exciting, is working on the genomes of Plasmodium vivax and Plasmodium falciparum. These are two of the pathogens that cause human-associated malaria. And so malaria was actually really quite common. It was really a truly global disease until quite recently. And in particular, we have malaria in Europe, stretching from Britain, the Mediterranean through to sort of European Russia, until around about the 1960s. And so one question is how important are these eradicated, these historic malarias in understanding the disease? And I was lucky to work in a collaboration where we sequenced DNA of some of these eradicated European plasmodium of these malaria species from a fairly unique resource. And this was the resource of some antique medical microscopy slides, which were sampled from patients in Spain's Ebro Delta in the 1940s. And it was possible by taking the blood smears on these slides to generate enough DNA to sequence the first kind of semi-complete genomes of these eradicated malaria parasites. And this suddenly allows us to ask questions. It allows us to ask, well, how common was disease before the eradication in, in Europe? It allows us to ask where there may have been some historic spreads and transmissions of malaria. And it also allows us to ask whether we see any evidence for resistance to some of the anti-malarials we use today in those historic genomes. And in particular, we focused on Plasmodium vivax malaria, and we were able to infer that this European eradicated strain revealed the legacy of this migration and spread from Europe to the Americas, taking place in around about the 15th century. And so this gives us a kind of tantalising insight that actually malaria caused by the vivax parasite was not that common or didn't exist in the Americas pre this 15th century period. And of course, this date coincides very nicely with our knowledge of European colonial expansions. So it's one of these cases where we think actually malaria may well have been spread with colonialism right across the sea. So that's the bad bugs that infected people in the past and made them sick and the bad colonialism that certainly didn't help, which is fascinating for historians. But why should the rest of us care about studying these ancient diseases in today's modern era when we've got a brand new pandemic to be worrying about? I think a lot of these methods are ones that we really should be caring about now. And that's because understanding spread, movement, migration of humans and their pathogens is something that continues to happen and will continue to happen. Particularly for understanding the movement of different pathogen species, there's large-scale efforts now to reconstruct epidemics and outbreaks using genetic data in conjunction with epidemiological data. And this is allowing us to infer what factors might be important in, for example, a hospital outbreak and try and understand how genomes are either expanding or contracting as we as a society change around them. And this is really important, particularly for pathogens, as we have potential to inform public health interventions and certainly to use what I term uh, genomic surveillance to understand what variants and what parts of the genome we need to be worried about. And, as you might expect, bringing us full circle, Lucy and her team at UCL have been very busy analysing the genomes of the various strains of SARS-CoV-2 that are in existence around the world, particularly in order to understand how the virus is mutating and evolving as the pandemic spreads. But that's a topic for another day, if I can face it. 
And finally, it's time for a quick look at what's in the latest episode of the podcast from Heredity, the journal of the Genetic Society. The evolutionary splitting of one species into two, a process called speciation, is usually thought of as a one-way street. However, this isn't entirely true. In this episode, James Bergen talks to Dr Jente Ottenbergs from Wageningen University to discuss the curious case of the wonderfully named bean geese, where his analysis of goose genomes shows that the process of splitting into two different species, tiger and tundra geese, appears to have slowed, or perhaps stopped altogether. So the thing I would highlight is this uh, idea of, I'm a bit reluctant to say speciation uh, in reverse, because then you imply that they were different species and are now merging. So I would say that they were in the process of becoming different species and that this process has now been reversed. Um, Because if you look at uh, a lot of the literature on speciation, often people see it as the speciation continuum, where you go from two populations that can hybridize all the way to complete reproductive isolation. And you get this feeling that this reproductive isolation is the goal of speciation, maybe even the goal of evolution of getting different species. But I think it's important to realize that this process can stop, for example, when you get a hybrid zone, but it can also reverse, as we show with uh, the bingies. So I think we need to step away a bit from this idea that speciation always leads to complete reproductive isolation, but that there's a whole continuum in between. You can find the full interview in the latest Heredity podcast. Just search for Heredity in your favourite podcast app or follow the link on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. That's all for now. Thanks to my guests, Claire Steves, Christiana Scheib and Lucy Van Dorp. In two weeks, you'll get the chance to hear some exclusive excerpts from my upcoming book, Rebel Cell. Please pre-order it now. And next week will be the next bonus episode in the Genetic Shambles series, brought to you by the Cosmic Shambles Network in association with the Genetic Society and the Milner Centre for Evolution at the University of Bath. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter, at Genetics Unzip, and please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference. It helps more people to discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is presented by me, Kat Arney, and it's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard. Our logo was designed by James Mayle. Transcription is by Viv Andrews. And production is by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.